Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. It is good to have you here. And I got a couple of quick updates that I want to uh, give you before we get to the good stuff. And today we've got the good stuff again with a friend named AJ Sherrill. And AJ talks to us about his journey into Anglicanism. He talks about uh, spiritual formation and the Enneagram. He talks about his newest book that's coming out a little bit later this year in October that's about brain science and contemplative prayer and contemplative practices. And we talk about like how do we how do we start contemplative practices? What how do we dip our toes into that? We talk about for those of you that are pastors and church leaders, we talk about what does it look like to as we're having our own sort of journey in that what does it look like to begin to create some space for um, us to invite our community into that? And so I'm excited for you to get to hear from AJ. Uh, before we get to AJ, though, a couple of quick updates. Uh, many of you know uh, a friend and I recently launched something called Sermon Camp. You might know about it because you are on my newsletter. If you want information like that kind of stuff, the upcoming things we got going on, that's at mikegoldsworthy.com. And I put some info out about it a few months ago on the newsletter where we invited uh, a small group of pastors, I think that there was about 10 of us, to spend a day with the legendary Stanley Hauerwas, uh, who is this incredible ethicist and theologian. Uh, I love, there's so many things I love about Stanley. He he uh, was named by Time Magazine in 2001, the America's Best Theologian. And his response to that was, he said, there is no theological category for best. Like, oh, he's so, so brilliant. And actually, one of the most wonderful things about our time with him was how kind he was towards us, how generous he was. And and I'll be honest, there are some scary Stanley Hauerwas stories. If you are around the circles where that gets talked about, you know that there are like legends and stories. And so we were we were ready for that. But I experienced the exact opposite, just kindness and generosity by a brilliant mind who has shaped so many of us. And if you don't know who he is, my guess is that somebody who has shaped the way that you think about the Christian faith has been influenced by him. And so we spent a day with Dr. Hauerwas. Oh, but by the way, can I tell you another thing that he said? Somebody, one of the one of the uh, pastors that was there, asked him a question and set him set up the question by saying, "This you are the great Stanley Hauerwas." And so, how does the great Stanley Hauerwas like maintain his faith? How does the great Stanley Hauerwas find community? How does the great Stanley Hauerwas and ask these questions like that? And, and his response was so fantastic. He said, I know that there is this character called Stanley Hauerwas that you talk about, but that's not me. What I do is I, I go to church regularly. I do the things that you do. And it was just this beautiful experience of this guy who has not gotten too big for his britches. In fact, I think at one point I asked him, how many books have you written? And he said, out of all genuine honesty, he goes, I have no idea. Like, ah. Oh. I love that, and I want that. So we spend a day with Stanley Harawas, and he talks to us about the book of Matthew, and he talks to us about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And then the next day we get together, and we just start thinking about, like, what does it look like to create a sermon series out of this? 
And in community, we began brainstorming, like, what would the theme of the series be? What would be some of the highlights, the things that we would want to pull out? If if you were doing one section of the scriptures on the Sermon on the Mount, what would what would you want to focus on? What would be the thing that would, like, grab you there? And then we split off into groups, and we just sort of, like, developed that idea a little bit and then shared them and offered feedback and ideas along with. It was so good. Anyways, friends, we if you are a pastor or a communicator in some sort of way, we are going to be having more of these. We've got two of them happening in October. We've got another one happening next spring. We'll have more happening. Um, if you want to be in the loop on that, it's mikegoldsworthy.com. Uh, sign up for my newsletter there, and I'll put stuff out every once in a while. The second thing is, for those of you who are pastors and leaders in post-evangelical churches, and if you have no idea like what is a post-evangelical church, go back through some old episodes. Start with the one with Jason Miller. Start with that episode and start listening through a few of those where we just talk to some pastors and leaders in that space. And if that feels like that resonates with you, we have a gathering happening in October. And right now, it is still free to attend. At the end of July, uh, start charging a minimal fee, just $50 to show up. But it's free to attend this gathering where we've got uh, a couple of friends coming, Britt Barron and Scott Erickson, to sort of like guide us in creating some space for us to um, create space for the spirit, to create space to, uh, for many of us, it might be the first time that you're regathering with other pastors uh, in a year and a half or two years. And so create space to be re-envisioned and to be for the spirit to just do a little bit of work restoration. And then we're going to spend a lot of time sitting around tables and talking. We're going to share ideas, share what we're learning, uh, challenge from one another. So it's going to be, uh, rather than typical pastor gatherings, it is going to be less stage heavy and more relational conversation heavy. And so we're looking for pastors and leaders who feel like you fit in the post-evangelical space to have that conversation. And and genuinely, I was not expecting uh, many folks to turn out to this. This was kind of a... um, thing that we put together out of out of folks that I was connecting with saying like we just want to like can we meet each other in person can we be together can we meet other pastors in the space and so I had this thought of like gosh if 25 people would come together like that would be a really beautiful thing and uh, I'm recording this it's July 8th and we've got uh, I think 50 registrations right now and so there's gonna be 50 of us who are leading pastoring in this space showing up there my guess is probably 75-ish of us who are going to end up there then, and I would love to have you with us. So details are on on mikegoldsworthy.com. Again, one of these days I will work on fixing up that website. In fact, that's one of my goals to get started on later this year to make all that stuff more easily uh, navigatable to figure out where all the stuff is at. Uh, I have talked for way longer than I wanted to. This is what happens to quick uh, updates, right? And seven minutes later, you can take the preacher out of the church, but you can't take the preacher out of the preacher. Keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. So, hey, let's turn it over to my conversation here with AJ Sherrill. When we talk about spiritual formation, talk about the church, talk about spiritual disciplines, so much good stuff. Uh, all right, friends. Well, it is good to have you back with us here on the podcast. And we got my friend AJ Cheryl coming to us from uh, South Carolina, right? Charleston. Yeah. Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and what what is the this is July when we're recording this. What's the weather like in Charleston, South Carolina? We had like tornadoes last night 
because some Elsa tornado from the Gulf of Mexico oh, came yeah, yeah. streaming over. Um, it's humid. It's uh, it's AC time for sure. Um, you get an occasional like reprieve, but it, it's pretty hot and muggy July, August, and some of September. So, but I'll take it over the cold of the winter uh, in the north, which I spend a lot of years in any day of the week. Right. Yeah. Sure. And you're, I mean, you're close to the beach there, right? Yeah. So our church is like two miles as the crow flies from the beach, and I love that. Yeah, that's amazing. What do you do? What like so you were in Long Beach for a little bit, and that's how we got to know each other some. Um, what do you do differently at the beach in Charleston than you do at the beach in Long Beach? I'll tell you, it's really cool. There's um like creeks everywhere that are these little tributaries off from the ocean. And yeah. so like our neighborhood is on a creek, so I'll paddleboard a lot of the mornings when the tide is high. And it's so beautiful and restful, and the water's brackish. And, and that I love more than even going to the beach is it's so restful to just stand on a board at sunrise and be in your own thoughts and be going through the marsh. It's really fantastic. That, that sounds really amazing, actually. I love that. Um, all right. So you, after Long Beach, went out and were pastoring in New York. And then um, you were pastoring in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan at a, uh, a church called Mars Hill, where Rob Bell was your opening act, and he's opening for you. And now you are, uh, you've are you gone Anglican on us at, out in um, Charleston. Yeah, like, can you, do you mind sharing a little bit about, like, your journey into Anglicanism? And I'm even curious, because folks on here know that I do some work with post-evangelicals. Like, I feel like you've gone, like, pre-evangelical. <laughs> I, they might call that historical, if you will. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm just putting on clothes that I've worn inside for a long time. Um, I think I was drawn, I went through a pretty significant deconstruction phase when I was out in Long Beach near you and when you and I first connected. Um, and I had a moment where I realized, um, my wife was pretty frank with me of like, hey, you're either going to be in with Jesus or you're not. And if you're in with Jesus, you got to like be totally and you can't like pick and choose. And as it turns out, Jesus loves the church in all of its forms and for all of its particularities and, and all of its faults. And so I had a, I had a pretty profound moment of like, okay, um, did the resurrection happen? If it didn't, then I'm off the hook. If it did, then I don't, I, I don't have many options here. And I couldn't get away from that question and I couldn't get away from my conscience, which for some reason, um, I, I just can't stop believing that the resurrection happened. And so um, that just took me deeper and deeper into a desire for all things um, Holy Spirit, all things liturgy, all things sacrament. Um, and I found out that a lot of my faith had been sort of like just doing what I want and that I really wanted a really safe but like um, broad sort of script to follow Jesus with liturgy. And I found that in the egalitarian charismatic stream of the Anglican church called C4SO. So I've been sort of like a closet Anglican in this stream for a long time. And it's only been in recent days that I finally actualized what's been in my heart for, uh, for over a decade now. Yeah. And so by like closet Anglican, do you mean like you were following you're following the liturgy and the prayers and things like that in your own sort of personal life. 
Yeah, I mean, even in New York, when I was a pastor at Trinity Grace in the neighborhood called Chelsea and at Grand Rapids, we did as well. But it was very like um, uh, sort of subversive. It wasn't like clear, stand up, sit down, you know, turn around, smells and bells. It was very much like allowing the liturgy to do something on you without you even knowing that that's what was happening. So it was sort of like following the broad brush of those things. Like we weren't legalistic about it at all, but we did say that there are certain pivots that Anglican liturgy is trying to do in us like confession and like um, the passing of the peace and like saying the Lord's prayer and, and receiving the Eucharist, like these sorts of things we would very organically um, put in there um, through music, through different strategies that would be refreshing rather than sort of rote and, um, you know, overtly religious in a way that people were like, wow, like, are, are we come? Is this all new? This is great. And it'd be like, actually, it's the oldest thing we can imagine. Mm. And we're sort of resourcing and retrieving a great tradition that we think is a really broad path. That's good. I um, There's an Anglican church in Long Beach that I would often go to on my off Sundays. And, and the heritage I grew up in, we practiced communion every week. Um, but you know, you passed it and it was always the little plastic cup of like a shot glass of grape juice, right. And a, and a little cracker mm. and, <laughs> and, uh, and so that Anglican church was my first experience of going up to the front receiving from the, and I don't is it a pastor in the Anglican church or is it, um, do we call them priests? Well, we're a low church, which means like, we don't take all that sort of, um, okay. stuffiness very seriously. Um, so like I go by lead pastor, but I'm also in our tradition known as a priest. So I'll go by AJ. Actually, I prefer AJ to anything, but, um, we, we're a little ambidextrous there, but typically it's a rector or priest in most rector. That's, that's right. So I, I went forward, uh, to receive the Eucharist and I, and I get, I get my wafer and take that and go to get the cup. And I had never had somebody pour the cup for me. And so I'm on my knees and there's a woman who's who's like giving me the cup and I didn't know how to drink it. And so like she puts it on my lips and I couldn't drink it like it wasn't going into my mouth. So I just start like bending down lower and lower and lower trying to get the get the wine into my and finally, finally, I get it in there. And um, and she leans over to me and she says, next time you can put your hand on the cup. That would be helpful. <laughs> mm. like, oh, thanks. A little I, humility. Yeah, it was good for me. It's it's all in the Eucharist. You get humiliated while receiving Christ. No, I mean we do intinction, which means we dip it in, especially in a COVID moment. Yeah. Um, I always give the instruction every week right now that we dip shallow, or I'm sorry, we live deeply, but we dip shallow um, <laughs> in order to keep fingers out of the wine. Um, but yeah, that, I mean that's hilarious, and a lot of Anglican churches do it that way, where you actually drink from the cup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't want to spend all of our time talking about the way that, uh, I experienced Eucharist at the Anglican church. I wanted to talk to you about, um, your books. I wanted to talk to you about a book that you released recently and a book that you've got coming out soon. So your last book that you put out was on the Enneagram and spiritual formation. And that's what it's called too, isn't it? It's like the Enneagram for spiritual formation. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And um, do you mind talking just a little bit about like what's kind of the impetus behind that book? Uh, like yeah. what, what was driving needing to integrate the Enneagram and spiritual formation? 
Yeah, I, I I first learned it from Richard Rohr back in um I don't know like the early 2010s. I was doing my doctorate and I took a class with him at his house and um there was like ten of us all week and we got him off topic to talk about the enneagram because none of us had ever heard of it and it had not become like you know a big thought within the evangelical church or the church at large at least in my experience at that point and so I came home really with a personal like epiphany about my own like I was able to name like my growth points in ways that like weren't shameful, but were just really Mm -hmm. honest. And I began asking myself like, okay, what do we do with this? Because I think we've all been a part of conversations where it's sort of weaponized. Um, You sort of narrow people down or the point of the Enneagram is to know the Enneagram. And um, I I, I ended up studying with Suzanne Stabile at a workshop with Ian Cron. This is before their book came out. Um, And I just remember thinking, okay, I said to Suzanne, I was doing my dissertation at the time. And I said, who is talking about spiritual formation with this? Like, what do we do with it? What about spiritual practices? What about the church calendar? What about biblical narratives? Like, how do we help people walk with this thing to where it's not just an end, but it's a means? And she was like, to my knowledge, in the Christian world, nobody. And so that became my dissertation. Years later, Baker bought the rights to it. And I sort of added some things. And last year came out with the Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. So my biggest thing is to help the church, like say, okay, um, this stuff helps you name some things that you need to name, but how, how can we through spiritual practices pair those with our personality so that we can actually grow to become like Jesus in our lives? Yeah. So is a, a part of it then is in understanding the unique way that we're each wired, understanding the way that we understand how we present ourselves um, as an Enneagram number that we might need different practices in order to grow based off of our leanings. Is yeah, that you a fair? S- you said it better than I did. You probably should have written the book. So congrats. <laughs> um, well, so you talk about downstream and upstream disciplines for each number. What, what are, for our friends who aren't familiar with downstream upstream disciplines, what is that? Yeah. So imagine getting in a lazy river. So like your downstream practices come really natural for you. And so they're like encouraged. So if you're like an Enneagram three, like reading books and data acquisition and growth and achievement, there are just ways that we can actually do practices that feed that part of our ego and our lives that are actually ways God made you. And that's great. But there's also called what's upstream practice. And that is imagine getting in that same raft. You have to work to get upstream because the stream's fighting against you. And so what are some practices that we need to take seriously um, that wouldn't come as natural for you? But nevertheless, there's something in that swimming upstream that's going to challenge your personality and grow you. Kind of like being at the gym, you know, lifting weights where you burn the negative. It's that slow sort of burn on the way down. What happens in the spiritual life is that we often circle what we're good at and what we like, and we omit the rest. I mean, the same can happen in our reading of the Gospels, let's say. Like we circle what we like about Jesus's teachings And we just sort of omit the parts that we don't. And we call that following Jesus. And that's not actually what God is inviting us into. It's confronting both the things that are are, need to be challenged and also celebrating the things that are already good. I like that a lot. And and so I would even imagine then that there are some practices that for me are going to be upstream practices um, because they're not natural. They're more difficult for me. But for somebody else, it's going to be a downstream practice for them. It's and going that's, to be it. That's right. That's the beauty of personality is that we're not actually all the same. And that, you know, a lot of people look at the Enneagram as like an individualistic tool. 
The beauty of the Enneagram is that you see that we actually mirror the presence of God better together than we can apart because of the diversity in which God made our personalities. So yeah, you're correct in that there are some practices that are going to come easy for you that are more difficult for others based on your personality. Yeah. And so um, I heard you talking about, I think it was on our friend Steve Carter's podcast, where you're talking about some personal practices that you have. You, you had talked about, um, I don't know if you still do this or not, because that was a little while ago, but you're talking about maybe like not drinking wine after a certain time. Um, I don't remember what practice you had called that, but I'm kind of curious about the idea of creating practices uh, creating spiritual disciplines that it's like, this is something that I need. That's not necessarily like one of the categories of these are 15 mm. historic practices, but here's this one that I need that's specific for me. Do, do you mind sharing a little bit about that idea? Yeah. In fact, um, my next book coming out, there's a whole spirituality of sleep that I talk about and sleep's getting like all this buzz right now. It's hilarious. Um, so the practice of not drinking wine after a certain time has everything to do with the spirituality of deep rest and good sleep every night. And so I just discerned, and this is like true for everybody, I think, um, you get to a point in your life where wine actually wakes you up um, if you drink it after a certain point because of the things your body's doing to extract the toxins and the dehydration that you go through. So I was just like, okay, um, I don't function well. I don't think deeply. I don't pray well. I'm not relationally connected if I'm tired throughout my day. So what am I doing at night that's actually like not allowing my body to get the full eight hours that I need to really optimize my next day. And I realized that drinking wine after like seven, eight o'clock every night is not helpful. And also eating food after about 7 PM, it, hmm. it actually does an inverse reaction in your body while you're sleeping. It's not allowing your brain to go to work to restore and heal all those places because you're digesting, it's producing chemicals. All of these things are happening that aren't actually allowing you to wake up on time the next day to move into the fullness of what God has for me. So that just became a practice where I was like, that's spiritual. Like that's not any less spiritual than maybe reading the Bible. So I should think, yeah. I should think about that. Yeah. So I love that, that it's like this ordinary thing that you do that can be seen as something that's actually helping to grow you into more and more Christ-likeness. I'd be curious, do you see that as something different than like if if somebody's listening to Tim Ferriss and he's like, you need to stop drinking wine at a certain time because you're going to function better in the work that you're supposed to do. It, is it different because of the mindset that you're approaching it with? Or is it still a spiritual discipline because it's the practice of that that's actually doing something to you? I don't know. I mean, um, if I understand your question right, are, are, are you sort of assuming that like a Tim Ferriss would be talking that for like some sort of secular enterprise? Sure, yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I would take a very Abraham Kuyper sort of perspective on that, that every square inch belongs to God. So like whether you're doing that for the sake of work optimization or whether you're doing that to cultivate a better prayer life or something, um, I think all of that belongs to God. So we could make the case that that would be spiritual one way or the other, um, because work significantly matters to the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I love it. Well, so uh, you mentioned your next book that's coming out, which is called Being With God, The Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer, um, which I, I love your subtitle on that is really fantastic. And I had read something that you had put out a few years ago that I think was like maybe an early iteration of this. Um, and so as you're getting into contemplative practices, like you, did you grow up or was your first experiences in the church in a more low church evangelical kind of experience? Yeah, I grew up in sort of a contemporary Baptist tradition. 
okay. um, that felt pretty detached from anything denominational, you might say. So how do you start to like get involved in contemplative practices? Where does that shift come for you? Failure. I, I planted a church in Long Beach that failed, like by human metrics, um, meaning that it didn't produce a lot of growth or a lot of sustainable uh, income. <laughs> that's, that's how you sort of <laughs> talk about it without talking about it in church plant circles. And I realized um, that I didn't have a prayer life. I realized that I didn't have a life with God. I had a life at God um, where I could might extract some things that I felt like would um, maybe give me sort of like a, a false um, confidence that, that I was doing the right thing. And so it was through the failure of a church plant that I realized I don't, I don't know how to be with God. I know how to be at God. Um, hmm. and, and so contemplation then became, um, especially as an Enneagram three, which, you know, we're known for our achievement and performance orientation. It was the invitation to, um, receive everything by doing nothing. And by doing nothing, I don't mean being lazy. I just mean that my day needed to begin, um, with presence and stillness, not with email and performance, um, and that that was a discipline for me because everything was about the bottom line. And to surrender that as the first part of my day um, became really sacred for me and a part of my own formation. So hmm. so what does that look like for you? Like when you say you, your day begins with presence and stillness, like what does that practically, tangibly look like? For me every day, I make my French press coffee, which is like huge for me. That's, it's so funny, like, the spirituality of the French press is massive. Like I just, it's part of my thing. So um, I don't check phone. I don't jump into things. Uh, I make coffee. I sit on my porch and I say the apostles creed as a way of saying, I choose to Mm. surrender to this story rather than making up my own. And then I start with the Psalm and then I just sit. And then eventually I move on with a couple other readings before starting my day. So it's not rocket science. Um, I integrate a little breath prayer that's called the Jesus prayer for a few mm-hmm. minutes. So I'm not spending three hours in stillness and silence and solitude, which the great mystics wouldn't even suggest that necessarily. But I, I do start my day um, trying to put myself in a posture of receptivity rather than um, generativity, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And are you using any kind of like tangible aids, whether like, prayer ropes or icons or anything like that? Do you find any of that helpful for you? Yeah, I have before. I I don't stay like very, um, I don't know. I like to switch it up. So like I have a rosary that we bought. I remember in Assisi a long time ago um, when my wife and I were visiting Italy and I like that one. Um, I like St. Francis, but um, if you don't have a watch, I find that like a little rosary is helpful because it helps you gauge your time. Cause once you're done going around the rosary, you kind of know how long that takes and that can free you from needing a clock or a watch nearby. Mm. Um, And then I like icons, but I don't use them regularly. Um, And so I, I think for anybody, like I I just really always encourage mixing things up. Um, I honestly just like sitting on my front porch and rocking (laughs) that does the trick for me. Um, It's very South Carolina of you. That's right. I'm trying to live into the low country here. (laughs) Um, so you were talking about how I'm going to mess up how you phrased it, that you were talking at God rather than being with God. Is that kind of what you're saying? And, um, I know in your previous work, I don't know if you phrase it this way or not in, in your newest book coming out, you talked about, 
um, cataphatic versus apophatic prayer. I'm probably mm. saying it wrong. No, that's great. Uh, do you mind like talking a little bit about the difference of those? Yeah. So cataphatic would be, let's just, the easiest way to understand it is through the senses. So, um, it's what you smell and taste and read and see. Um, it's what you feel and touch. So like all that stuff is about like engaging God through our sensory experience. And the Protestant church is almost 100% cataphatic. And that's not a problem. It just it just needs some sort of balance there. Again, we we do what we're good at, and we omit the rest and call that following Jesus. There's this also apophatic um, experience, which is about moving away from the senses. Apo means away from in the Greek. And so, how do we move away from having to have spiritual experiences that are in the senses, like I felt God, or it? You know, it, it's almost a deeper way of knowing that has nothing to do with needing to hear words or gain knowledge. Um, it has everything to do with trusting that something is at work within you, even when you don't see, even when you don't feel. And it's no different than sort of being in a deep relationship with someone where you get to a point in intimacy with someone where words are um, sort of um, invited, but they're not necessary in terms of intimacy. Hmm. You can kind of look at someone and know that you're known without saying a word and I think that often when Jesus was escaping to be with God in the silence, you'd have to think, especially 40 days in the wilderness, that he ran out of things to say yeah, and yeah. that it was enough to just be with God and to know that he was the beloved. And so for us to start our day that way is really helpful. Yeah. And that that gets called prayer, that like growing up in a kind of church that was much more cataphatic, that like when I would picture Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days praying or that he would often go to lonely places and pray that the image that I always had was he's saying a lot of things to God. Mm. He's telling mm. God a lot of things he's asking for things like he's, but there is this like being with that was maybe um, much more present. Or you even imagine that if he wasn't saying something, then, then God was saying something. Mm. And so it was just sort of filled with a dialogue. Mm. But, but what if, what if God was just content to be with the son in that space um, where again, words are welcome, but not necessary. There's a kind of presence that, that far transcends like what words can curate here. There's, there's a deeper thing there where words are great, but they're not the end all be all of the presence of God. Um, I like to say to people, cause they'll say to me often like, yeah, I prayed and God didn't say anything or I don't hear from God. Um, and I, I always like to encourage people if that's how you feel, Maybe God's silence towards you means that through Jesus Christ, there's no longer any accusation that God has against you. Hmm. Maybe things have been hmm. so settled in the triune God with you that that God is willing to be silent because it means that God just loves to be with you and that there's no accusation coming against you. And that's a really freeing place. Um, so silence, sometimes we need to befriend it, um, as my friend Rich Velotis would say. That's so good. Yeah, that's so good. So then how does all this connect with brain science, neurology? What's the, what's the connection there? Well, I think we live most of our lives in the frontal lobe, um, meaning that there's this whole thing happening in our brains that's called the CEO that a lot of neuropsychologists and neurologists would say that sort of runs our lives. Um, squirrels, you know, every, there's something yep. always co- yep. sort of darting in. And the contemplative tradition is really about um, learning to give those those neurological connections a place, but not letting them run your life. 
most of us really struggle, especially if you're new into contemplative practice. It's really hard. Like there's a reason why we don't do it. And it's because we have what's called monkey mind. Like we're just all over the place. We're fidget spinners all the time. Um, And what happens is um, if the frontal lobe of your life is running the show of everything you do, there are places in your brain that never actually have um, permission to sort of log on. And like, I'll give you an example right now. Um, the media targets are amygdala, which is our fear center, our fight flight centers. And that has nothing to do with areas of compassion. Like there are other parts of your brain that will fire when it comes to empathy, compassion. And that has to come often through getting out of our frontal lobe, getting out of our amygdala, being still and silent because other parts of our brain will fire at that time. And that's where compassion and empathy begin to take place. And that's where that can inform our frontal lobe as to how to respond to this political conversation rather than allowing our frontal lobe and our amygdalas to run the show, not allowing compassion to get involved in the equation. And that's the place where I think a lot of our society is stuck is some of these areas of the brain are not allowed to come online to have any sort of contribution for the relationships that we're in. And so I think brain science has so much to teach us on practices that will help us to be more integrated because reason is good. The frontal lobe is great but it's not the only thing in life that needs to be accessed in order to live a full existence in fellowship with people. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Um, and was it, is it Martin Laird who said something to the effect of that the opposite of contemplation is an activity, but it's reactivity. Reactivity. That's so good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you end up just in this place where your, your monkey brain is taking over and you're just reacting rather than, um, yeah, operating out of a deeper well of place. So I, li- I like to look at it like this. I remember N.T. Wright a long time ago. He's a theologian um, over in um, England, Scotland area. And he once said a long time ago, um, he talked about that Sully Sullenberger flight. Do you remember that that landed on the mm. Hudson? Yeah, yeah. And I guess the news flash the next day in the Times was miracle on the Hudson, you know. And he said, actually, let's deconstruct that a little bit because Sully was a glider meaning that he practiced that maneuver day after day after day after day. I mean, thousands and thousands of reps. And so it was natural for him when the time arose for him to land that plane on the Hudson in an emergency. And I think contemplative practice is a little bit like that. If we can train ourselves to not be reactive, to not jump for the phone, to not jump for the answer, to not jump for the things that we want to at the beginning of the day, then maybe at 5 p.m., when that thing comes in our lives where we would normally jump on it, maybe there's a kind of training that we can do in the morning that will help equip us and be slower to respond by 5 PM. You know, I like to think that's what's happening when I'm slow in the morning and still. Yeah. So um, for our friends who are listening, who maybe are newer to contemplative practices and tomorrow they're like, I'm going to, in the morning, I'm going to wake up. Before I check my phone, I'm going to engage in stillness. And what immediately starts happening is the monkey brain starts going. They're going in. A, they've got all the thoughts of all they have to do during the day. Um, they, while they don't have like the TV on or radio on, their head is still filled with all kinds of noise. What would you suggest? Like, how do they begin that practice? How do they start to quiet the noise in their head? Yeah, I like to tell people when they start like to come to there's a practice called Lectio Divina. It's spelled Lectio, L-E-C-T-I-O, Divina, D-I-V-I-N-I. And um, 
you can look that up. There's four easy beats. Uh, my book, Quiet, a long time ago, helps to guide people through these sorts of questions with simple practices. And then the one coming out includes some of that and more material. Um, what I like to tell people is Lexio Divina partners the cataphatic with the apophatic. If mm. all we've ever known is cataphatic, it's really hard, sort of like a diet, to be like all in on one thing and all of a sudden you're like cold turkey. It's like, whoa, that's really hard. Um, how do you ease into it? Well, Lexio Divina, like select a text, let's say from the Sermon on the Mount, and just like read it for three minutes straight. Go over and over it again. Maybe it's three or four verses, right? So read it and then take it to another level. Reflect on it. So like what in that do you think God has for you? So if it's like three or four verses, maybe there's a word that's just lifting off the page. Maybe it's the word peace or maybe it's the word wait or maybe whatever it might be, right? So God, why? why? Like why that word? And what does that have to do with my life today? And what relationship is not at peace? So you're just, you've read it three minutes now you're reflecting on it three minutes. Now write about it for three minutes. Like get it out on paper. Write a prayer that you can just give it to the Lord, right? And then the last thing to do for three minutes is just rest. So it takes you from this cataphatic stage of hearing the scripture, ruminating on it. It's what you're used to if you have a quiet time or whatever. But it takes you to a place where you can finally let go and be apathetic. You can then yeah. just be still and you can know God heard your prayer and you don't have to keep holding it. You gave it to God. So now you can just rest in the presence and I just say a really simple prayer. Um, I'll often say, um, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. That's mm. it. I, I breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, and I breathe out, have mercy on me. And inevitably, all these thoughts are going to keep coming up in my mind, and that's okay. You just have to, again, surrender those back to God and get back to your breathing and your prayer. And you'll find the more you practice that, the longer you can go. Um, but it also gives you information because like, you know, I'll practice that for, let's say a month or two at a time. And then one morning I'll get up and I'm like terrible at it. And that gives me information that something's happening in my brain that needs to be dealt with. It's not at peace. So even when we fail at it, it's always yeah. instructive that there's something underneath that, that God wants to show you, Hey, this is really, this really has you in your life, this conversation, this relationship, this thing that just keeps getting in the way of me being with you. So I just want to bring that to your attention, AJ, so that you can really give that to me. All of this stuff's really helpful for me. Yeah, I like that a lot, the the recognition that, like, I've been doing it for a bit, something's not right, so there's something that's hindering me from that. Like, in what way are you starting to investigate what that thing is? Do you have a contemplative practice for that? Is that in therapy? Is that talking with your wife? Like, what does that sort of look like? I think all of that. I think all yeah. of that is 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 fair game. I think at the end of the day, like if you're really interested in self-knowledge, um, we're told that the spirit of Christ lives at the center of our being. So that spirit knows you more than you know yourself. So if you're really interested in self-knowledge, I think the spirit will reveal what it is that's really at mm -hmm. you. But I think you have to be open to that. Like you have to be open to knowing your mischief and to knowing your contribution to the breakdown. Um, and I don't think a lot of people are very open to that because we want to win and we want to be right. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Um, so in addition to folks who, so I've got, a, a like, there's a bunch of people who will listen to this, who are in some sort of process of deconstruction of their faith. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that, um, in like, are you familiar with Fowler's work on stages of faith? No, yeah, of course. And so for our friends who aren't like he uh, in the 70s, psychologist who studies like the way that people in different religious traditions are sort of maturing in their faith and looks to see to observe, like, are there common stages? 
one of the things that's interesting to me is that when you reach a stage, depending on how you break up the stages, the way that um, the way that a couple of authors that I've paid attention to break it up is stage four is sort of the stage where things are getting messed up for you. And you are like, we would call that like the common language getting used right now is deconstruction. Um, but that the way that you move well in that stage is an inward journey and not a journey of knowledge. And so it seems to me that one of the things that's missing in the whole like sort of pop um, conversation around deconstruction is the um, introduction of contemplative practices as a means by which we grow through that journey as opposed to just like, oh, I, I have new knowledge. Now I'm reading more books now. Mm. Um, do, do you find contemplative practices as a hopeful pathway for people who are in that process? I do. I mean, I, I would be, um, I'd be slow to be prescriptive toward yeah. people. Cause I mean, our, our life experience is so diverse, you know, and realizing what people are bringing in. I mean, I even know people that have like trauma because of contemplative prayer for this reason. It, it reminds them of something that happened in their childhood and that creates mm. some sort of chemical thing going on. You know, so I've just been around That's enough good. of those conversations to know, like there is no like, Oh, you're going through this. Therefore take this pill and this will, but I, I do think what's helpful is that um, contemplative practice isn't about um, controlling or certitudes. It's about trusting that something is happening even beyond what you can apprehend. And, um, and so it's an invitation to really take faith. Like most people think of faith of like, I'm deconstructing the doctrines that were handed to me when I was a child. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's all well and good. But real faith isn't actually just, it's, it's really trust is the way that word breaks down. It's allegiance. It's what am I trusting um, to sort of fill the void of my inadequacy? Um, because we're born with a vacuum of needing to be filled with something. And the good news of the gospel is that we're filled with the spirit in a way that we don't have to earn it or perform. We receive it through grace. Otherwise we will try to earn it from getting it from other people or from our careers or something like that. So I do find that it's helpful in deconstruction because, you know, we, we've been told recently, I, I like this framework that, you know, the opposite of doubt. Um, isn't certitude, it's trust. Mm -hmm. So if we want to escape just being cynics and doubters all day, it's learning what is it that I trust is really at work at the center of the universe. And I think Jesus reveals God in flesh that it is the spirit of God who has been hovering over the water since the beginning, who is renewing the world from within in ways that we can't quite fully see. And that begins in the center of the human heart. And I want to choose to trust that even when it's hard for me to believe that. Yes. Yes. That's so good. Um, so a second group of folks that are often listening into this are pastors who are trying to lead their churches into new spaces, oftentimes moving out of evangelicalism. And a lot of them are having some sort of experience and contemplative practices have been a part of their journey. And they're trying to figure out, like, what does this look like to bring this into a corporate space? So I know you mentioned that you were doing that in some low church uh, spaces. Like, do you mind just sharing a little bit of, like, what would be a couple of thoughts on, obviously, you're not being prescriptive, but what would be a couple of thoughts on 
pastors and church leaders who are trying to figure out how do I corporately move my church into um, having more openness to this? I don't think, let's just take Sunday. We'll talk about Sunday and Wednesday. Um, I don't know that many pastors are operating in frameworks where awkwardness is invited. In fact, we are so committed to cataphatic spirituality in the Protestant church that we alleviate awkwardness at all costs because um, everything is about transitions. And well, when you pray, we'll get the band on stage. There's no space where nothing's happening. (laughs) And I think until we're clear that we're not here to satisfy consumer demands, but to really help people befriend silence and stillness, we can actually create spaces in our service that are quiet and still. I remember um, philosopher uh, James K.A. Smith um, we created a little formation school at Mars Hill back in the day. And I had Jamie come out and, and help partner with me to do that. And he said, AJ, until we are comfortable to help churches create stillness, we're not going to see the kind of peace that our community needs to inhabit in the world because they're not even comfortable cultivating it in themselves. And I thought that was really good wisdom of like, do we have space even in our gatherings where we just, we just invite people to be still to like what other environment throughout their week are they encouraged yep. to be still? Certainly not at work. Certainly not raising the kids. Like everything is about movement and time and getting ready and blah, blah, blah. And so if, if there's one countercultural thing a church can do right now, it's to invite the church you have gathered. And so we can take just a moment to be still mm-hmm. and then we'll move into the next thing. Right? So I would say find creative ways to be still in your gathering. Um, on Wednesday nights, we've also created a, a thing called Seek, which is both a contemplative and charismatic service at the same time in our church where we begin in stillness and move toward outward expression. So, um, you know, we have found that, hey, let's invite people that want to opt into this at a different space um, where we can do this more deeply um, and to see what we have there. So I don't want to force something on everybody, especially because it's such a shock to the system. But there are little ways on Sundays that we can begin to introduce these things. I love it. I love it. Um, AJ, you have been so gracious with your time today. Thanks for thanks for making time. Uh, your When is your new book coming out? October 19th, Being With God. It's available for pre-order right now wherever books are sold. Yes. So let's pre-order it, friends, because uh, pre-orders are helpful for books to get out there, to get known. Uh, so Being With God by AJ Sherrill. And is there like you're not on the social media and stuff much anymore. Is there places where people can pay attention to you if they want to hear your preaching or hear your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, our, our church website, stpeters.me. Um, but I think uh, I'm going to be ratcheting up Instagram a bit more. I've, I've been a bit off for a while, but it's AJ underscore Sherrill. Um, and I've got some uh, Instagram live chats coming up with John Mark Comer and Rich Velotis and John Tyson and some others where we're going to be talking about some of these things for 15-minute segments. So if you follow me on that, you'll see the schedule that will be coming out in the fall where you can even chime in and, and be a part of the conversation um, with some of those other voices that are having similar conversations. Love it. Love it. So good. Um, yeah, AJ, thanks for making time today. I appreciate it. And um I'm really excited for this book to get out there and for folks to engage in it and to listen in on these Instagram conversations. Oh, thanks, man, for your grace. Love chatting with you as always, Mike.